Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again this morning to worship you through the teaching of your word. And Lord, we just ask now that you would teach us by your spirit and open us to understanding of what you would have us to know about Christ and the hope that we have in him, seeing that he is our only hope, seeing that he is the resurrection and the life. And what a blessed hope that those who believe in him shall live and not die. And Lord, let this be the hope of your people in spite of the circumstances of their life and everything else that may seem to be going wrong. And yet we know that the cross is the final commentary on our lives as who have run to Christ, our city of refuge, that we may find help in the time of need. Lord, we just pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. John 11, verses 25 to 35. John 11, verses 25 to 35. John records for us and says, Jesus said to her, that is to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live and Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The word of the Lord. And for a sermon title, I have titled this message, The Good Shepherd at the Funeral. The Good Shepherd at the Funeral. And and, an alternative title is Jesus Wept. And, And that is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Lazarus is still in the grave and the Lord has finally showed up at the scene. The mourners have gathered at Mary and Martha's house to comfort them concerning their brother Lazarus. This is not a very good time for the family that the Lord loved. Even those that the Lord loves are not spared of grief or the suffering of this life. If anything, we hear the testimony of the scriptures saying that we are appointed to suffering, but thankfully we are not appointed to wrath. We are not spared of the suffering of this life, but we are not appointed to wrath. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Apostle Paul writes and says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. 
but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. But for this family, this temptation, this testing has a multi-layered purpose. It is for the working of faith in the disciples that they may know who Jesus Christ was and is even in our own situations. For one can walk and live with Jesus and yet still not know who he is, as happened with his brothers. His brothers were unbelievers, and yet they lived in the same house with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. But this story of Lazarus is also preparing for a much bigger stage and a much bigger performance It is a rehearsal, as it were, of what the Lord himself is about to undergo on the cross. And that is why Jesus said this at the opening of John 11, verse 4, concerning the sickness of Lazarus, he says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And that is the key statement of salvation in this chapter, and it helps us to understand, it opens us to what is happening in the chapter, even in the whole scheme of salvation. It is a summary statement of why salvation, why sin, why the cross. And if the sickness of Lazarus is not unto death, but for the glory of God, then it follows that the bigger stage that it prepares is also not unto death either, but to the glory of God. The death of Christ was not a permanent death. This was not saying that Jesus was not going to die. No, it was saying that Jesus was going to die, but he was not going to remain dead. Just as Lazarus was going to die, but Jesus was going to come and resurrect him. So the death of Christ was not unto a permanent death, but was for the glory of God. God being glorified in the death of his son as the son took or safely grounded the judgment of the breath of God on behalf of his people. So Jesus Christ is our insulation of God's wrath. Just like the the ark of Noah was the vessel, the insulation that kept Noah and his family from the judgment of water. The family of Noah were not spared from the judgment per se. They had to go through the judgment. But the difference between them and the rest of the world was that they were in a vessel that could hold the judgment. (laughs) So we who are in Christ, we were put in Christ Because Christ is he who could hold the wrath and judgment of God. And we were in him. So the sickness of Lazarus is not unto death because the Lord loved him. The elect in Christ do not die. Why? Because Christ died for them and they died and resurrected in him. But not only that. Because the Lord loved Lazarus, he was going to take that sickness of sin and death away from him. 
see that the glory of God was tied to the love of Christ for Lazarus. Or the love of Christ for Lazarus was tied to the glory of God. God is not just loving us for loving us. He is loving us for his glory. And so Lazarus got sick and died because God wanted to demonstrate his love for Lazarus by raising him from the dead. And so we became sinners because God wanted to demonstrate his love for us, towards us in our salvation. And love is best demonstrated by what is given. This is something that everybody, I believe, knows, even the unbeliever knows this. Love is best demonstrated by what is given. And that is why some people break the bank to buy the most expensive gifts. But some in the process end up getting broke. (laughs) Why? Because they're trying to impress on their own small measure of glory. They're trying to show someone that they actually love them. You can't just get away with saying, I love you, but here is a lollipop. You may work for nice, nice for a minute and buy some peace. But you may have to consider buying a diamond ring that weighs 20 shekels. I don't know how heavy that is. That weighs so heavy that the one wearing it will have to have a sling <laughs> to support their heavy hand. And people will be like, oh, yeah, of course. Look at her. She has such a very nice ring. I'm sure the husband loves her. (laughs) And God demonstrates his love for his elect by giving them his best possession. That's the idea. He's giving as his best possession his own son. And so sin and condemnation were inevitable if God was to show his love. Christ could not be fully appreciated outside the reality of sin and salvation. It is in the helplessness of sin and condemnation that the grace and mercy and love of God are the most magnified in our eyes. We could not just show up in heaven. We could not appreciate things correctly. We become like spoiled brats. We take everything for granted. We think we are owed heaven by God. We think that if we just trip and fall, the natural extension of our life is heaven. And that is why people will come at the funeral of unbelievers and preach them right into heaven, even though they hated Christ in the gospel. Our taste buds would not appreciate and would not taste grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, peace very well outside the context of sin and free salvation. And so we had to fall into sin and become helpless. No way out. But this sickness was not unto eternal condemnation and death for the elect in Christ. It had an eternal purpose in Christ, which was his glory in our salvation. And so the sickness of Lazarus was going to be put on Jesus. The sickness of Lazarus was not going to remain on Lazarus. It was going to be put on Christ. It was Christ who was going to bear the sickness or infirmities of Lazarus so as to remove them from him. And if this was true for Lazarus, it is true for all whom the Lord loves 
and uh, the elect in him. So this is where Lazarus is. Lazarus is in the grave and Lazarus has no power in himself to resist death and so he succumbed to death. And Lazarus could not say, no, by my free will, I refuse to die. No, Lazarus succumbed to death because death had power over him. And the sisters have no power either in themselves to raise their brother from the dead, whom they also loved. Death dispossesses and makes powerless. And men are the most helpless in the face of death and human inability For so much of the talk of human ability, human inability to save ourselves is best demonstrated by our inability to stop or reverse death itself. Human free will means nothing as long as it can't stop or reverse death. Human free will can buy whatever shoes people like or clothes that they like or whatever phone they like But that means nothing. The will that we are talking about is the will to cause life or to reverse the process of death that men have no ability to do. Because to stop or to reverse death is salvation. And men have made such wonderful inventions, technology with much great skill, but there's something that the skill of man is unable to fix. And that is death itself. And when death shows up, it only leaves tears and a deep vacuum. It creates a vacuum that can be filled with air like a tire. There's nothing that we can do to correct what death leaves in its work. But Jesus alone comes and he makes these claims that no man has been able to make. He makes the claim that he is able to give life. He is making the claim and demonstrating that he can resurrect someone who had died and showing that he had power over death and power over life itself. Now that makes Jesus very interesting and very, very, very powerful person that we need to know because it seems he is the most important person who has ever walked on this earth. So Jesus alone has enough life in himself to fill that vacuum that death causes, okay, by reversing death and putting life back. And that is why a gospel that plays fast and loose with Jesus' answer to mankind's biggest problem is opposed to the true gospel. Because death is the most uniting thing there is among mankind. It's one for one. Everyone who has been born is going to experience death. That's man's biggest problem. But the death and resurrection of Christ was not just about Jesus overcoming death, but it was the victory over death by the elect through and by the power of Jesus. Jesus did not come to overcome death just to overcome death. Jesus was never under the power of death because he never was a sinner. Jesus was always God and so for him to be subjected to death, 
he had to be made in the likeness of those who are under the power of death. And so he had to be born of a woman that he may be under the law and being under the law that he may be subject to death. And so Jesus went into the boxing ring with death and gave death a huge blow and death died (laughs) in the death of Christ. And death surely respects no man, but there's one man that it respects is Jesus Christ. It respects Jesus Christ. And because of his resurrection, death also respects all those who died with him and in him. Death knows that it does not have power anymore on those that died with Christ. The elect only walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. The elect don't walk in death, they walk through, which means they are passing through. Their abode is not in the valley, they are only passing through the valley of the shadow. The death is only but a shadow to the believer. And the shadow of a lion cannot bite anyone, no matter how fearsome it looks. It can't. It's just a shadow. No matter how real it looks, it's only but a shadow. So on account of Christ's victory over the grave, the gospel says we shall not die. We shall not die. Not because we have power over death in ourselves, but because of what Christ did to remove death from us. Christ's victory over the grave is the gospel. And that says we shall not die. Because if we minimize that aspect of the gospel and we only talk about the righteousness, then we are missing a bigger chunk of what Christ accomplished for us. Because the righteousness, if the righteousness does not overcome death for us, then it does not help us. The righteousness of Christ is important to us because it is by this righteousness that death has no more sway on us that we overcame death by. So the victory of Christ over the grave is the victory of the believer over the grave and that is the basis of why they do not die because he lives and we live in him. So the death of Christ, as I said, was not for Jesus but for the elect. Jesus did not need redemption. So the hope of the gospel is not that time will heal the scars of death. That's a very popular saying, common saying, that all time will heal. But time is nothing. It's almost the same argument to say, oh, we came from the primordial soup 600 million years ago. Like if you say, or if you give some debt, just enough time, that debt will come to the realization that it can become a human being. And that's foolishness. Time is nothing. Time is no power. Time is not God. God is God. Time exists because God exists. The hope of the gospel is that we have already overcome death and time is not what heals us. It is God who heals if ever there is going to be any healing because it is the cross that heals the wounds that were caused by death. By his wounds we were healed. 
So until we find ourselves in the blessedness of Christ in the gospel, there's no healing that will actually ever take place. It is the good Samaritan, Jesus, who came and poured oil and wine and bandaged the wounds of the man who had been wounded, who had been stripped naked and left for dead. And the believer is he or she who were found beaten by the roadside, stripped naked and left for dead. And so, if we are to be true ministers of the gospel, we also have to bring the balm of Gilead, the oil and the wine, to heal and stop the spread of infection. We have to speak of the victory over sin and death that Christ accomplished for his people forever. So that the grip and fear that death used to have on God's people has been removed, Christ has overcome our biggest enemies, every one of them. And so in Revelation 7, 13 to 17, John records for us and says, Revelation 7, 13 to 17, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne would go among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So it is God, this one, who is in the midst of the throne, who will shepherd his people, and he is shepherding his people. It is he who silently comforts and dries the silent tears of his people, the anguish of the soul. It is he who comes and comforts us whenever we get comforted. And this is why Jesus is the most important, the most glorious, and most useful, most wonderful, and most humble person and name that one could ever know and pronounce from their lips. When everything is said and done, everything is contained in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the summary of everything. In him, everything consists. <laughs> And the name of Jesus by itself is enough for salvation because he is salvation. The Lord is salvation. And some foolish person who does not understand the way of salvation and who does not understand who Jesus is will come and try to argue their foolishness and say, no, but Jesus is not enough unless you do something, unless you do whatever else they tell you to do unless they bend you to what they think about Jesus, not what Jesus thinks and says about you. Because the testimony that really matters is not what we say, but what Jesus says. What does Jesus say about things? Because he knows all things. And I say to some of these people, if you think you have ability to maintain your salvation, to do anything for your own salvation, 
Wait till God lays you down with some condition that takes all your ability away from you. Alzheimer's, dementia, and all those things that you may have put your effort in. Because God will have you to know that the flesh profits nothing and that it is the spirit who gives life. And when men have come to the end of themselves, they will realize that only Jesus Christ is life. There's only hope in the name of Jesus. He is all in all and in all. And there are some who have studied so much, who have read so much, that they don't know anything about Jesus. They've been around Jesus so much. They've been around the things of Jesus so much. And yet, he have not touched him as the woman with the issue of blood. The woman, she came to Jesus. And she could not even reach Jesus. Because there were so many people around Jesus. Who were not touching Jesus in a way that brings salvation. And yet she comes and she reaches for the hem of Jesus' garment and she was healed. And the boy Samuel was in the tabernacle serving and he even slept in the tabernacle and the tabernacle is where God came and showed his Shekinah presence, his glory. And the boy Samuel is in there every day and even is sleeping in there, taking a nap in there. But the text says in 1 Samuel 3, 7, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. <laughs> and there are many who are sleeping in the temple, who are sleeping in the church overnight. They are having, what do you call them, overnight prayers, night visuals, and yet they do not know Christ. God has never spoken to them. There are many who are saying many things about Jesus, who do not yet know the Lord. And not only that, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ has not yet been revealed to them. And that is why it is important for us to know what testimony of Christ we have. The Holy Spirit has very specific testimony about Jesus. He has very specific testimony about the gospel. That Jesus alone is our salvation and we do not help him and we did not help him in any way to get us saved. So when you touch Jesus, like the woman with the issue of blood, or even more, when Jesus has touched you, you'll never be the same again because you can't go back to hear the so-called Gospels that are not real Gospels. And people will come and try to explain away with all kinds of philosophical expressions and arguments what they do not know, so that they continue to be comfortable in their own experience, so that they may continue to validate their false experience of salvation. So they will continue to hold to the hope of their ignorance and puffed up imagination because they are so prideful, they will not acknowledge their foolishness and say, oh, I did not know the Lord. I thought I had been saved, but I'm just now coming to the realization that I was not saved. And it takes grace for one to come to that realization and acknowledgement to say, thank you, Lord, for finally revealing yourself to me. All this other time, I've just been around the temple, sleeping in the temple, 
and yet you had not yet spoken to me. And Jesus says, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The commandments of men. There are a lot of commandments of men being taught in the church. Like we saw, the soul slip and the annihilationism, water sprinkling of children and making them Christians, decisional regeneration, inviting and making Jesus Lord, works salvation, Sabbath keepers, those who deny the deity of Christ, and many such things. All those are commandments of men. They are doctrines of men, not of Christ. And these doctrines are opposed to the gospel of Jesus. Eschatology, like salvation, and everything else is driven by Christ. Eschatology is the study of the end of things, the end times, the last things, the things that abide, the things that remain, what becomes of man when they die. Even after they die, what becomes of them? What's going to happen? So salvation itself is eschatology. And it is eschatological because it's looking forward to the future of what is going to happen to you when you die. And what God is saying about you right now. And this salvation happens only with the appearance of this one called Jesus. The appearance of Christ, the seed of the woman, is eschatology. Because it is he who disposes of, of all things. The appearance of Christ is the appearance of the last Adam, eschatos, where we get eschatology means last. L-A-S-T. The last person, the last Adam. So it is the appearance of Christ, the last Adam, and it is the appearance also of salvation and judgment because salvation and judgment have been given to the Son, according to Jesus in John chapter 5, that the Son may be honored as the Father is honored. So the last Adam, Jesus Christ, comes and he lives and he is judged and he dies and he resurrects, and he is glorified, and he gives life. These are all end-time things that happened to the person of Jesus. He came, he was born, he lived, he was judged, he died, he resurrected, he was glorified. That is everything that is supposed to happen in the future, and yet Jesus comes and he experiences it in the now time. And so he would come and say, I am the resurrection and the life. It's happening right now. Don't look way too much forward. It has already appeared in my appearance. So the glory of God is Christological, which means is Christ-centered. Just as God, the Trinity, is Christ-centered, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Christ is the revelation of God. If you have seen Christ, you have seen God. You have seen the Father. So whatever has to be known and can be known about God is found in Christ Jesus. And that is why we say Jesus himself and his appearance is the gospel. Is the gospel. Don't try to be smart 
and remove some things from Jesus and say, oh, no, that's not a gospel issue. No, anything that is tied to the person of Jesus is a gospel issue. So we do not judge the things of God from our sense of justice, from our own wisdom, but by the glory of Christ, by the words of Christ. For we know nothing about justice. We know nothing about glory. We know nothing about anything. And so God has to teach us. And the cross is the means by which God teaches us who he is and who we are. The cross preaches many things to us. It is the classroom where God teaches us about himself through the Son. The cross speaks of his holiness, of his righteousness, of his grace, his love towards his people. It speaks about his power, his justice, his wisdom. The cross also preaches the foolishness of man and the wisdom of God. What God did with Christ on the cross to his satisfaction, he will do with those who are not redeemed in hell. In Christ, God is satisfied. In Christ, God is happy with the elect because Christ was the sinless God-man who represented them. God is happy with the elect because they are in the womb of Christ. Those who hate Christ shall be in eternal hell because they have no God-man to cut short their time of stay in hell. Because for your time of stay to be cut short, it has to happen by one who is qualified to do that. One who is a God-man, who is sinless man and God in one. That is the only way that the justice of God can be satisfied. And the only way that time can be cut short. But the ones who have no God-man representing them cannot have their time cut short because they don't have anyone to satisfy God's justice for them. And that is why the solution of salvation was not for an angel to come and take up human flesh because that could have happened. An angel is capable by God's power to take up human flesh. God could have done that and be crucified. God could have done that if this was enough to remove your sin. But an incarnated angel is insufficient to burn for salvation. An angel is insufficient to ground the wrath of God's power in judgment. Christ alone is fit for that. And so when we talk about soul sleep and annihilationism, we are removing the offense of the cross through the back door. And we are watering down the atonement that Christ made. The death of hell is not a cessation from existence. That's not what is being said. The death of hell is speaking to us about the impossibility of satisfaction of God's justice by a sinner. 
day and night of anguish will not do it. And being eaten by worms will not do it either. And that is the death that is being talked about. It's in a state where you can't be redeemed and yet you are alive. But according to my flesh, I wish soul sleep and annihilationism were actually true because that would be some way of escape. That would be a way of escape. But the Bible only says Christ is our refuge. There's only one way of escape and it is through the death of Christ. Hell magnifies the glory of Christ. It is the mirror that magnifies grace and the power of God. God is not going to manifest his power by creating a big rock that is so big that he can't lift it. That's not how it's going to work. This is how he determined to manifest his power. Romans 9, 22 and 23. You know the discourse that Apostle Paul is making in the chapter of Romans and arguing for the sovereignty and justice of God in salvation and election. And he says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, So God wants to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Wrath cannot be shown without sin. The wrath of God justifies his justice. It magnifies his justice. And so for that to be seen, he has to create vessels that will experience that justice. Verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. That he might make known the riches of his glory. God on the one side, he has so much riches of his grace that cannot be known outside hell, (laughs) which he prepared beforehand for glory. So this is what is driving everything. It's about him displaying his power and showing himself to be God. So his power will be made known to you in grace, that is salvation, or in hell, and that is justice. And the eternality of hell is to that end. And if God did not withdraw his wrath from his sinless son, then let us not fool ourselves to think that he is just going to put unredeemed sinners into some shock-induced eternal coma. It's not going to happen. Jesus cried and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet he was a sinless son of God. And so if he did not spare his own son, guess what? He's not sparing anybody else. And knowing Christ should make one fearful of him because it may appear like this life is going to continue the way that it is, but no, that's not true. We have to meet with him that we have to deal with one of these days. And fearful of Christ by not making a mess of his gospel, by bringing the doctrine of Christ in its fullness, Knowing Christ should make one tremble in the reality that he could not have chosen us 
for salvation and that we did absolutely nothing to be found in him. And in the light of that fear and the love and grace of God, you delivered God's people what Jesus teaches. It's unhelpful for me and you to come and hear foolishness about God when he actually has said something that is unchangeable. We are better off unlearning a lot of the foolishness and know the truth than to continue having the pacifier of falsehood in our mouth. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments, which means hold to my doctrine, hold to his doctrine. And when you hold to the doctrine of Christ, you become gentle with those for whom he humiliated himself to redeem. The sheep do not belong to some smart guys who pretend to know everything out there. The sheep belong to him who is the good shepherd of the sheep. He said himself, my sheep, and he says, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. It is he who died for them. And he is opposed to everyone who abused his sheep, thinking they are doing him a favor. And Jesus does not need a favor from anybody. Remember what he told Simon Peter about his sheep in John 21. Verse 15 is that whole conversation, but we just restrict ourselves to verse 15. This is after the Lord's resurrection. And they appeared to Peter and the disciples. And he says, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than this? He said to him, that's Peter. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. If you continue with the conversation, Jesus then begins to say, feed my sheep. Jesus does not say, feed my lions. He only has sheep, very vulnerable animals. And all of his sheep begin as lambs. So he begins with, feed my lambs so that you can make them mature sheep. They come to me vulnerable. And so they need tender hands. And they need to be fed the gospel, the hope that Jesus himself recorded for us. And to be fed the gospel is not just to tell them about Tulip or the doctrines of grace. It is to declare to them the whole counsel of God. As one good under-shepherd once said in Acts 20, 27, 28, Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul, anticipating his own death, says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Apostle Paul declared to us the whole counsel of God, who Christ is, what he accomplished, and who we are in him And how we are to walk in the light of that knowledge. Verse 28, he said, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he alone purchased with his own blood. He purchased the church by himself, by his own blood, by his own sacrifice. So the sheep are called 
sheep not lions because they are vulnerable people and they remain vulnerable. Even the most mature sheep are still vulnerable. So they need to be told about the person of Christ, his victory, and his preeminence over all things. Because Christ himself is the gospel and the hope and portion of the believer. And with Martha and Mary, we see the great shepherd of the sheep in the midst of his sheep at the time of their vulnerability. And he weeps for them and with them. He is the appearance of God in the flesh and he is showing us the heart of God with respect to his people. And that is something that you don't go and watch at the movies. The love of Christ, the gentleness and humility of Christ on display. And Jesus said that the sign that an under-shepherd loves him, the sign that the under-shepherd loves Jesus is that they are tender in the handling and feeding of his greatest possession, his sheep. And he does that by giving them the right food in due season. Very important. But Jesus is saying his only interest in the world is his sheep. And so anyone who claims to love the sheep of Christ, we have to feed them the way that Christ would feed them. So the under-shepherd has to know something about Jesus first before he can handle the sheep. Because if he does not know the priorities of Jesus, then they don't know how to handle the sheep of Jesus. And yet some measure their service to Christ by how much they abuse his sheep with swelling words and with puffery and with a lot of theology that takes away your hope. Matthew 24, verse 42 to 51. Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. That's speaking to preparedness. Therefore, verse 44, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in juices? Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. And the master will come by his appearance, or he may come when he kills you. Either way, you're meeting with the master. <laughs> Assuredly, verse 47, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's going to happen. 
So what is being said there, there are two kinds of servants, the wise and the faithful and the evil servant. And they both have been given charge over the master's house. And one is faithful and he's giving food, he's feeding the household with the food at the right time in juices. But the other one begins to do what? Or the master is not looking, he's away. I am going to beat the fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, meaning what? They are abusing the message of grace. That's what they're doing. So the question that we have to ask is, are some of these men who are professing to be grace preachers among the faithful and wise servants or among the evil servants? Why talk about grace when you have no ounce of grace in your speech? and dealings with those that belong to the household of Christ. Those who belong to the household of Christ. Because one has to think about these things, because sometimes I think people get overtaken so much that they stop thinking about what this business is all about. Apostle Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, he says, If anyone teaches otherwise, and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. Wow, awesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. If they don't consent, they don't bring the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, withdraw from such men. There's nothing that is hard to understand about what becomes of sinners when they die. They do not so sleep, and God does not annihilate the unbeliever. He keeps them in eternal hellfire. The believer goes to be with the Lord, and their body remains in the ground waiting for the resurrection. And this is a very clear teaching of the Bible. You can't read the Bible by yourself and not come to that conclusion. And the gospel is the gospel because it gives this blessed hope to God's people. The hope that the Lord himself promised to his sheep when they were in distress. Jesus is among his sheep with Mary and Martha and they are in serious distress and so he comes and brings the hope of the gospel to them. He does not say, oh, Lazarus is in soul sleep. He says, John 11, 25, 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He begins to speak life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And that verse 25 speaks to the situation with Lazarus. Even though he may die, he shall live. Verse 26 speaks to Martha and Mary and those who are alive. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Shall never die. And if this statement means death to someone, there's nothing that I can do to help them understand. 
because this is the gospel summary and hope. This is good news for the believer who has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. This is a gospel that comforts the believer in the face of trials. This is not philosophy from Jesus. This is life. This is salvation. This is an imperishable hope. The hope of seeing Jesus in peace. The hope of forever in his presence. But praise the Lord that this is not in the hands of sinful men. And so the question that we have to ask is, are these so-called men giving the household of the master their food in due season, in due time? And the food that is being talked about is speaking to the spiritual needs of the people of God through the gospel. And, And see also the sovereignty of the statement by Jesus that both the faithful and the evil servant were appointed by the master to manage his household. So in the church environment, you're going to find both the faithful and the evil servant. The evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and he begins to beat his fellow servants. He is not beating everybody else outside. No, he is only beating up those who are in the household. And brothers and sisters, let him who has ears hear. I said all that to say in the dealing of Jesus with his sisters in the face of their loss, in the face of their pain and anguish, he ministered to them the true gospel as the good shepherd of the sheep. And the hope was in teaching them that they did not have to wait to the end of the ages to see their brother. And that they did not have to be afraid to be judged of their sin to live. He says, well, if you believe, you are as good as judged. And you shall live. Because the end of the ages had arrived with him and in him. And so, as Jesus is ministering, he is applying his own theology. From Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30 where he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mother and Mary need rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why, Jesus? Why should I learn from Jesus? For I'm gentle <laughs> and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ is light to all those who have run to him. He is light. And he is gentle. And what that means is Christ will never bring up your sin as to get you. To see, oh, say, Robert, remember that day? No, he doesn't play those games. So let's see in our text the continuation of the application of the theology of the Shabbat among his people. Verse 27 of John 11 The mother said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. The hope of salvation is in the testimony of the identity and the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Christ, the Messiah, who is the Son of God, who came, that's the incarnation of Christ. And that statement was a very high 
Christological confession. It was a double confession. There is a confession of Jesus being the Christ and then being the Son of God. So it's a double confession of the person of Christ. Verse 28 to 30. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary a sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. So Martha, after she had made her confession of the Lord, withdrew, went away, and secretly called her sister Mary. She did not want to draw the mourner's attention to the presence of the Lord, at least before Mary had had time to speak with Jesus. So she told her that the teacher had come and Martha identified Jesus here not by the same high Christological confession that she had just made earlier, but simply by saying the teacher has come and is calling for you. See that Jesus is the teacher and he alone teaches. I do not teach anyone anything about Jesus. I just say some things, hopefully, that are true about Jesus with the hope that Jesus himself will teach you. Spiritual things are not taught by man, but of God. And a lot of people forget this. They approach spiritual things like they are teaching a math or geography class with charts and rulers and compasses trying to measure the circumference or radius of Jesus. No, it does not work like that. (laughs) Some even seek to find Mount Sinai and Mount Zion on Google Earth and miss the spiritual significance of the mountains. Mount Sinai is a picture of the law and the judgment that the law brings to the sinner. The fearsome judgment. And Mount Zion speaks to the gospel, to the peace that we have because of Christ. So it is very important for us to understand that even saying correct sentences is not the same as understanding spiritual things. Exegeting a text is not equivalent with understanding it. Jews were excellent exegetes of the text, but they still did not understand the Jesus who was in the text when he showed up. They could not recognize him, and so they rejected him. And to these then and now, Jesus says in John 9, 39-41, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees, of course, they were not happy with that. Like, okay, Jesus, what are you talking about? So they wanted Jesus to make a qualification of his statement. Like, are you talking about us too? So they said said to him, are we blind also? (laughs) Jesus said to them, verse 41, if we're blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. He's just saying, because you say you know the way of salvation by yourself, you think salvation is in you, you're still blind. And because you're blind to the way of salvation, you're blind to seeing me, the way of salvation, your sin remains. But Jesus had remained out of the view of all these people who had come to Mary and Mother's house. He did not get to the house. He stayed a far distance from, from the house. So in verse 31, John 11, 
John says, Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. So the Jews who were with Mary in the house followed after Mary, thinking that she was going to the tomb of Lazarus to weep there. If anything, she may commit suicide. And so they followed her to continue to watch over her and to give her comfort. Verse 32, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him in the company of his entourage, she fell down at his feet. And that means she worshipped him. And what Mary, look at this, what Mary did not say about Jesus by words she demonstrated by her actions. The Christological confession of Mary was in her knees, not in her lips. Martha gave the confession of Christ by her lips. You are the Christ, the Son of God. But Sister Mary gives the same confession by her bowing down before him and Jesus accepted the worship. So both sisters have good theology about Jesus and sometimes we can worship the Lord by just going down on our feet and being quiet before him. The knee confession of Mary was just as good and acceptable as the verbalized confession of Martha. Why? Because every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. So both of them actually fulfill that. <laughs> Mary's knee bows and Martha's tongue confessed that Jesus is Lord <laughs> to the glory of God the Father. So Mary already had her theology down for she sat at the feet of the Lord many times, if you still remember. But the flesh of Mary kind of rose up a little and she had to register her disappointment with Jesus. So she repeated the protestation of her sister Martha and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. My brother would not have died if he had been here. Obviously, this is something that both sisters have been talking about. And they want to make sure that Jesus knows about it. But that is a very serious theological statement. It's a very high theological statement. Even though said with some sense of disappointment with Jesus. Mary and Martha are not some foolish or misinformed theologians. They did not hear that from James Guyer. <laughs> This is not guesswork for them. The Holy Spirit is giving testimony of the reality of Christ in the gospel. He is giving the truth of the gospel that if Jesus is present, there is no death. It is the major theme of the gospel and of the chapter. If Jesus is there, no one is dying. So the one who believes in Christ has passed from death unto life. Because when you believe in Christ, Jesus is there. <laughs> and see that it does not say they shall pass from death to life. But it says they presently have passed from death to life. They possess eternal life like right now. 
And so we can't miss all these wonderful gospel nuggets and testimonies about life and hope in Christ. These were not just some flyby statements. And let's talk a little about what has become of the believer in the light of the new birth. The believer is he who has been inhabited by the Lord through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself said this in John 14, 12, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him, we will make our abode with him. So this is what has become of the believer. The Holy Spirit lives within us. He indwells us. And that means we possess the life of God in us. We possess eternal life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit that caused the resurrection of Christ. And it is he who caused our own spiritual resurrection. So he abides in the believer and he abides forever. The Holy Spirit is he who actualizes the spiritual union between Christ and the believer. Why? Because the Spirit was the promise of the new covenant. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you keep my judgments and do them. So the giving of the Spirit is a promise of the new covenant. And the giving of the Holy Spirit is part of the inheritance package of the new covenant. The will and last testament of Christ. Salvation is an inheritance package. We have to understand that. And the Holy Spirit is one of the benefits that come in the package of salvation. And this package came by way of a will and last testament, which means this was made way before we even showed up. And like any will and last testament, you don't open the package until the death of the one who made the will, the testator, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, when he died, he began to open that package and to give us first and foremost the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is he who mediates all the blessings that come in that package. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates. It is he who indwells. It is he who renews the mind and conforms the believer to Christ. It is he who seals. He is the seal to mark possession. And it is he who is the down payment of our salvation. And the Holy Spirit does not do this to prepare us to go into the casket. The Holy Spirit is not working for us to be buried because we already live, but he is preparing us that we may appear before him holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle. So the Holy Spirit is the down payment or the deposit that Christ will raise the body and reunite it with the soul in the resurrection. It is the body that gets resurrected. It's not the soul. 
See, the union understanding of Christ and his people is very shallow in a lot of our teaching today. And because that understanding is shallow, a lot of the theology is unbalanced and messed up. This is what is happening in the bigger scheme of salvation. The believer is united with Christ legally by election from before the foundation of the world. But in time, that union is realized through the Holy Spirit. Because the believer now is inhabited by the Holy Spirit and they will continue because of that. They will continue to live after their soul has separated from the physical body. The union of the Holy Spirit with the believer is not a physical union, but a spiritual union. So what is regenerated by the Holy Spirit is not the physical body. It is the spirit or the soul. The physical body remains the flesh. That is why it is sown in corruption and then raised imperishable. The spirit is the one that is, is the one that is being renewed after Christ. And this one, when you die, it is already prepared to be in the presence of Christ. Okay. So the renewing of the mind is not the renewing of the physical body. It is not the renewing of the brain. It is the renewing of the mind of the spirit. Okay. And that is why, as I said, the physical body has to die because it's unrenewed. It's unrenewed. And until it has been renewed in the resurrection, it shall remain in the ground. But in the resurrection, it is made fit for heaven. And so it is united together with the soul. Okay? And we don't apologize for this fact. Because the finished, perfected, and accepted atonement of Christ necessitates that Christ bring Robert to glory when Robert dies. The atonement demands it. You cannot die in Christ and remain in the ground without something showing up before Christ. Why? Salvation has been pictured in various ways in the Bible as the harvest. And there were actually feasts that God appointed to show something about the work of salvation. And saying, when Christ has fulfilled his work of salvation... He has to present something before God as the children of Israel were required to bring something after their harvest. Okay. Uh, listen to Deuteronomy 16, 16. Deuteronomy 16, 16. Yeah. Almost getting close. Getting close. Getting close. But it's important stuff. Deuteronomy 16, 16. Moses says three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, which is Pentecost, and at the feast of tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And Jesus was counted among the males of Israel, and it is he who fulfilled this feast. <laughs> In the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus fulfills by his incarnation. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, John 1, 14. And having tabernacled among us, he became 
the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread. Unleavened bread had no yeast, sinlessness of Christ, no influence of sin. And so he became the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread. And when you read the Gospels, they make the Passover and the unleavened lamb the one feast because the unleavened lamb, sorry, the unleavened bread, the feast of the unleavened bread began the day after the Passover. So they became one feast. Okay. So as the Passover and the unleavened bread, Jesus died to remove the sin of his people. And so when Christ came in the flesh, he was going into the field to labor. He came to labor. And that is why Isaiah 53, God will say, and he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Christ entered into labor, laboring in his field to save his people. But if you labor and you plant crops, and then at the end of the harvest, you have nothing whatsoever, then your labor was in vain. Okay. The Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, was a picture of the harvest that Christ brought because Pentecost was also a celebration of harvest. <laughs> it was a harvest feast. And God says, no one shall appear before me empty-handed. And if these feasts are pointing to the work of Christ, then after his resurrection, Jesus could not appear before the Father with nothing in his hands. He had to show the Father what it is that he had plowed and harvested. Jesus was the true Israelite. So we, we need to really understand the feast to have a well-rounded, sound and mature understanding of the gospel and of Christ. So Christ appears before the Father with the harvest of his people. And the believer shows up before God with the righteousness of Christ. For none shall appear before him with empty hands. Let me see if I can find something from the book of Hebrews. Something just came to my mind where Jesus is presenting. Like, like Hebrews chapter 2. He says for Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 to 13. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. That is his incarnation. For the suffering of death. So that is the purpose of the incarnation crowned with glory and honor after the resurrection, that he, by the grace of God, should test death for every man that is the elect. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church who I sing praise unto thee. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. So Christ has the children that God has given him in the wake of his finished work of salvation. And he is declaring them. He is showing them before God. 
Moses said, none shall appear before God with empty hands. Christ does not appear before God with empty hands. He has to come with those that he redeemed. And Brother Robert and Brother Stan cannot appear before God with empty hands. They come with the righteousness of Christ. You cannot come before God empty, otherwise you're not coming. Christ comes with the one that he redeemed. And he says, of all that the Father gave to me, I'll lose nothing. So he has to come and show the Father and says, look, I brought them all. I recovered them all. I am the good shepherd of the sheep. But when you come before God, you also come with the finished work of Christ. That's what you bring to present before him. Okay. But none, none shall come before him empty-handed. Verse 33 of John 11. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. When Jesus saw the weeping of Mary and those who were with her, he was moved. He was vexed in his spirit. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Jesus was not happy. He felt a righteous rage over death when he saw Mary and all the mourners weeping for Lazarus. And that is the testimony of the good shepherd of the sheep. You would have thought that as someone who knew the outcome of what was going to happen, you would have been smiling and like, okay, just take it easy, guys. But what, what is that telling us? It is telling us of the nature of Christ. He joins himself to the infirmities of his sheep. He knows when we are so. The physician is closest to the sickest of his patients, not the outpatient ones. So Jesus comes to bear their infirmities with them, to bear their fear and their tears with them. And he says, in the light of that, where have you laid him? They say to him, Lord, come and see. And John says, Jesus wept. Where have you laid him? I think was said with much force and with a high sense of agency on the part of Jesus. The good shepherd is looking for his sheep. Who has taken him? Where is he? In which direction was he lost? He has to find his sheep and bring it home. And so Jesus weeps. And by his weeping, he appears helpless to Mary. He appears helpless to Martha and the onlookers. We are going to find out that the next time that we get back to John. Now that sounds like the good shepherd of the sheep. He is unhappy that one of the sheep is missing and has been snatched away. Momentarily, Lazarus has been snatched away. And Jesus here was not shedding some crocodile tears. This is Jesus identifying with the weakness of the human flesh. This is Jesus sharing in the suffering of his people, tasting their pain in his own spirit. And this is what qualified him to be such a good shepherd of the sheep because he was not and is not removed from our infirmities. A good shepherd identifies and empathizes with the condition of his sheep that he may be able to listen to them and he may be able to speak to them. Hebrews 5, 5 to 8, the writer of Hebrews says, 
So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was had because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus Christ is at a funeral and he also has to cry. He has to shed some tears. Even though he was the perfect son of God, but according to his humanity, he had to learn the human experience in his flesh. But as Jesus is learning that human experience, he does it without sinning. And so the writer of Hebrews again continues and says in Hebrews 4, verse 15 to 16, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus weeps for Lazarus because he loved Lazarus. Jesus weeps for the sake of Mary and Martha because he sympathizes with their weaknesses. But not only them, Jesus also weeps for all his people. Jesus is crying for all those who are in him because he knows they are under the same sentence of death. For where there's death, there must be weeping. There must be mourning. Some have hired mourners, like in this situation, there were mourners who came from Jerusalem. But their mourning could not raise Lazarus from the dead. But God has given you the true mourner. (laughs) Jesus Christ, the true mourner, he comes. And he weeps for Lazarus. And, And my friends, what that is saying is, there's only one person who can mourn for you as to be raised from from the dead. Because when people are mourning, They are mourning to say they wish this would not have happened. And if their mourning could raise someone back to life, that is actually the intention. But when Jesus mourns, he raises from the dead. So Jesus is the last mourner for his people. He is the true mourner of his people because when he sheds his tears, he raises them up. When Jesus mourns for his people, God hears him and answers him like he's going to do for Lazarus. And that is the priesthood of Christ and the intercession of Christ. The weeping of Jesus is the prayer of Jesus for his people who have been overcome by sin and death. This is the, the prayer of a righteous man. These are tears of a righteous man and they avail much. It is the most precious thing For Jesus to be among those that weep for you. Imagine at your funeral, Jesus shows up. (laughs) Jesus shows up at your funeral. What a funeral. Jesus shows up at your wedding. What a wedding. Because whatever is wrong with the wedding, Jesus will fix. Whatever is wrong with the funeral, Jesus will fix. (laughs) To find Jesus in the company that were sorrowful over you, 
It's such a wonderful blessing. Even the mourner said, see how he loved him. See how Jesus loves you that he would mourn for a sinner like you and me. Jesus cries because he hates death. He cries because for a minute, death seems to have won the day over those whom he loved. But the tears of Christ are not just over the grave of Lazarus. They are looking to his own death on the cross. So Jesus weeps because he knows that the time that was appointed for him by the Father was right around the corner. And if you still remember, when Jesus was called to be told that Lazarus was sick, he had to pass through Jericho. He had to meet with the blind beggar, but Mias in Jericho, and then Zacchaeus at his house. But he has said something earlier. Jesus had said something earlier in Luke 18. He says, Luke 18, verses 31, 33. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So Jesus knows all these things. He knows all that was written by the prophets concerning him was about to be accomplished. Very soon he has to be delivered. He has to be scourged. He has to be killed because the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The hour is surely coming and it is too close for comfort for Jesus. But for this reason, he said, I came into the world. And so he cries. And so he weeps. And that, my friends, shows us the reality of the humanity of Christ. It was not pretend humanity or pretend humility. Jesus is more sensitive to our weaknesses than we are, for we have been hardened by sin. See the difference. <laughs> we are too ghetto and have been hardened by sin, and so our consciences are seared as with hot irons. They are not as sensitive to suffering or anything as Jesus was. But not Jesus. He bore our infirmities. He bore our shame and our griefs. He was the man of sorrows, even as he was among his people. He was not just some undercover boss pretending to work just for the television show. He truly was the servant of God, the lowliest of God's servants ever washing the feet of his people, even with his own tears. And so those who profess to be gospel of grace preachers need to bring the tears of Jesus in their gospel. The preacher of the gospel of grace does not only bring the nail-scarred hands and feet of Jesus, but they also bring the tears of Jesus. And that means the tenderness and gentleness of Jesus in the care of his sheep. We can't weep for ourselves. We do not have enough tears to weep for ourselves. And some of us have dry eyes. <laughs> but the tears of Jesus were pleasing to the Father. And so he had him because of his tears and loud cries and godly fear. And 
because our tears can't really accomplish anything. We can only go to him whose tears accomplish something and say, thank you, Jesus. That's all we owe him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your precious and wonderful tears that wiped off my own tears. Thank you, Lord, for crying for me because Jesus indeed wept for all his people because he loved them all. Look how much he loved him. Oh, how he loved him. That's the testimony of our gospel. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just bless your name and thank you for your son Jesus Christ and his wonderful tears that he shed for his people who had been overtaken by death. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of the gospel that the one who has believed shall not see death, the one who has believed shall not die, they shall live. And if we really begin to think about what that means, we don't even know what that means. But we know that it is true because Jesus said it. And so it is only the testimony of Christ that matters pertaining to anything and everything. And so, Lord, we just pray that you grant us the grace to bend ourselves or to be bent towards the truth of Christ and to believe it and to put our hope in it. We thank you, Lord, for this teaching. We pray that you continue to give increase to it. May you give ears those who shall listen from afar. And I pray, Lord, that you bless us even as we go back to our respective homes. Lord, we ask him for your grace always in our lives. And may you continue to give us the testimony of Christ. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.